of precious truths of redemption. For us who are here, who have trusted in you, O Christ, who have felt our sin, who have seen who we are in light of holiness and righteousness, and have seen our failure, but your perfect accomplishment for us, and have trusted in you and you alone, O Christ, have trusted in your life, have trusted in your death, have trusted in your resurrection, have trusted in your promises. We exult in hope of the glory of God, standing in you, O Christ, as we have seen justified, forgiven, reconciled to God, having received the ministry of the Spirit, regeneration, union with you, indwelling, creating in us the certain hope that we have of being with you forever when this age ends and when our life here comes to completion. May we be faithful to the end and may you this morning as we look at this passage in Matthew 27 and our hearts are being prepared for your table, will you open up to us in new and fresh ways the glories of your redemption on our behalf. We ask you for this aid and this grace and we pray in your matchless name, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, verses 47 through 50. Matthew 27, 47 through 50, as we're returning now back to the text of Matthew, to the passage that launched us into several other messages, looking at different angles, different aspects, different parts of the cross of Christ, the atonement of Christ on on our behalf. We ended... In our last time in Matthew, on verse 46, Matthew 27, 46, where Matthew records for us the words of Jesus on the cross, in which he cried out in deep anguish of soul, and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here the eternal Son of God in full humanity gives to us the greatest expression of human anguish that is even conceivably possible. Because of the perfection of his person, because of the reality of what he suffered, no human, no human being could ever experience the depth of anguish that he suffered in that, on the cross and is demonstrated in that cry, when as Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And for our redemption. And in many ways then we could say that Matthew has in those words recorded for us the very heart of the atonement. The heart of the atonement in the agony of Jesus. And in that cry we see our sin in full display. We see its depth. We see the misery into which it's launched us. Which is rightly ours. If we were to bear the weight of our sin as justice would require. But we also see grace. We see the depth and the breadth and the unimaginable accomplishment of grace on our behalf. Condemnation we deserved here being born by Christ himself in our place as our substitute. The stroke of justice due to us he bore himself in our place. And here is the mystery and the paradox of the cross. In the same moment that the Father is loving the Son, He is also laying on the Son the curse of the law and causing the anguish of His soul. 
In the same moment that the son is demonstrating his great love for the father and perfect obedience and love for those given to him by the father, in that same moment, he's feeling a sense of the father's crushing blow against the sin of his people, him feeling it within himself, again bearing it in his own body. It's a mystery, and yet it's a mystery that lies at the very heart of our salvation. And so in the darkness of that cry that we considered, there is the light and the joy of our salvation. There is the hope of forgiveness in Christ that we who know him have trusted in. And it's against the backdrop of that momentous cry, that great expression of human suffering, the climax of God's redemptive work in providing atonement, that there's another contrast on display. And it is the contrast of this great work that God is accomplishing in Christ set next to the blindness and the ignorance of the world. And yet what is overarching above all of that, really what we read about this morning again in in Acts, is that despite the blindness and the rejection of the world, God is accomplishing redemption for his people. And that is a glorious truth. Read with me just a few short verses out of Matthew 27, verses 47 through 50, and then we'll look at it more closely. And we'll just pull out four aspects of this for us to consider this morning. Begin with me in verse 47. And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Tremendous, tremendous truth. Look back again with me at verse 47. And let's notice simply first the misunderstanding and the misrepresentation of Jesus by the unbelieving How Jesus is misunderstood and misrepresented by the unbelieving. And even to the very end of his life, those around the ministry of Jesus, those who saw his power, saw his works, heard his words, saw, observed his life, misunderstand him. And they misinterpret his words. Now, it's not clear whether those who are speaking here misunderstood him on purpose or whether they misunderstood him really, that they thought maybe in fact that he had cried for Elijah. The words in the original are very similar. I mean, in one sense, you could see how that could happen. If the statement came from Roman soldiers, then you could see that maybe they really did misunderstand him, but it's not likely that they would have immediately associated that with a prophet of Israel, the prophet of Elijah, If it came from Jews, it's not likely that they would have misunderstood. They knew the language too well. Some have suggested maybe it was Hellenistic Jews. And so maybe they could have misunderstood it. But it's really difficult to say who it was. But the point to recognize here is simply this. That Jesus spoke. He spoke words of such importance and such profundity. And he's completely misunderstood or misrepresented. And that's the main point here. But even more importantly, they missed not only his actual words, and they didn't merely misinterpret them, 
But they missed the very essence of what he was saying, the very point of his cry. They interpreted his cry as a call for him to be saved, for his salvation, that Elijah might come and relieve him of his suffering. When in fact, the situation was really just the opposite. It was a cry not for his salvation, but it was a cry demonstrating his accomplishment for the salvation of sinners. Now, as I said, this words, these words of some from the crowd, let's see if uh, or he's calling out for, this man is calling for Elijah. It may be a, a sense of mockery, which is probably more likely. And the idea is here that they're indicating that God has abandoned him and will not hear him. So now maybe Elijah will hear him. He must call upon Elijah. He must call upon a prophet. He certainly could not appeal to God himself, since God has obviously rejected him, giving him up to be crucified, giving him up to the scorn of the Gentiles and the nation of Israel themselves. So that's probably the main idea here, that they were mocking him, mocking him in this. And the striking thing, however, for I want us to recognize is this. That these are those who heard his teaching. Again, they saw his miracles. They saw his life. And now in the moment that was really the pinnacle of it all that Jesus had said would come, it has come and they missed it. They completely, completely missed it. And how many times have people missed it throughout the ages? How many in the church have heard of this cry, have heard of the teaching of Jesus, and missed the point entirely? They heard something different than what God has actually said. Some look to the cross and they hear this cry, and they argue that Jesus was a good man giving us an example. He was a good moral teacher giving us an example that we should follow, but it certainly was not an atonement for sin. Some look at the cross and hear the cry, and they say that Jesus was merely a man. In fact, he was maybe a good man, not likely. He was instead a delusional teacher who had visions of grandeur, of bringing in this kingdom, and now his kingdom has failed. And so when they look in the cross and they see this cry, they see a failed prophet, a pathetic man who didn't get to bring his dreams about, whose intentions were crashed to the ground and failed. Some look to the cross and they hear the cry and they say that Jesus was an unwilling victim, a hapless victim, a forced victim of the Father, the cruel Father who made His Son go to the cross and made His Son a substitute, made His Son suffer. Those are the kind of things that you'll hear today. Those are the kind of arguments, those are the kind of explanations of the cross that are just as blind and just as dark and just as ignorant as these cries from those who said he's calling upon Elijah. The point is they missed it all together. They missed it all together. And the question simply on that first point for us is this, is what do you hear in his cry? How do you understand the work of Jesus? Is this a kind gesture of God to show you how much he loves you without repentance? just the way you are and stay the way you are? Is it the 
kind of cry that you hear, though, whether it's the Son of Man bearing your sin so that you might be forgiven. That's what we should hear. That's what I hope that you hear in that cry. But the way that we hear Jesus' cry and the way that we hear His words on the cross determine then how we respond to Him. And Matthew records for us a few responses here. So let's just notice, secondly, those who respond in mercy towards Jesus' suffering. Verse 48, Immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, and he put it on a reed, and he gave him a drink. Now again, there's a variety of ways that this act is understood. Some argue that the act itself in providing Jesus with wine was itself an act of Mockery. It was just continuing the mockery. Others say that it was, in fact, an act of mercy. Matthew is somewhat ambiguous on the point, although it seems clear, even from Matthew's explanation of these events, that it was, in fact, best seen or is best seen as an act of mercy. And particularly in light of the response of the others, if you look in verse 49, let us see whether Elijah will come. That let us see could be interpreted wait, hold on. In other words, stop the act of mercy that you were going to show. So in that way, then Matthew would be putting an act of mercy next to an act of mockery, highlighting really the mockery aspect. Now John helps us to see this, the Apostle John, by filling out some of the details. And again, I remind us that this is why, one reason why God gave us four Gospels to complete the story each one emphasizing different aspects of the events so that when we put them together, we get a fuller picture of the person of Christ. Not only do that, but we get multiple witnesses to the person of Christ and of his ministry. And so in this case, John helps us by filling out a few of the details, the background. He says in chapter 19, in verse 26 through 27, John records for us how while on the cross, before these events that Matthew records... Jesus saw his mother with the disciple whom he loved, most likely the Apostle John. He commits his mother to the care of the Apostle. And then he says in verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing all things, that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Jesus said he was thirsty. He said he was thirsty. And of course, this is a contrast, which we've noticed, noted previously, to his response in Matthew 27, 34. Remember when they wanted to give him wine mixed with gall and he refused to drink it? He refused to drink it. It was something that would alleviate pain, but he refused in any way to lessen the physical suffering that he had given himself up to in obedience to the Father. He knew he had to drink the suffering of the cross down to the fullness. He had to drink it down to its dregs, the bottom of the cup. And he was unwilling at that moment in verse 34 of Matthew 27 to in any way alleviate the suffering. But the case is different now. The case is different now. Now he says, I am thirsty. The darkness of the land is past. He's given out his final cry of anguish. He's cared for his mother. And he says now that I am thirsty. Why would he say that now? Why would he say that now? 
Well, John gives us a few reasons. Let me just mention them to you. One, he says it is to fulfill the scripture, verse 28. To fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Now, Psalm 22 has loomed large, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, but in these other Gospel accounts. Psalm 22, which is the account of the suffering of the righteous against the hands of the wicked. Most likely here, though, he has Psalm 69, 21 in mind, in which the psalmist says, They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And there again, as we often encounter in the Psalms, is the righteous suffering at the hands of the wicked, suffering wrongly, suffering unjustly at the hands of the wicked. And what John is pointing out, as the other gospel writers also point out, is that what is foreshadowed, what is seen in part, what is a glimpse, what is an anticipation of Jesus' ultimate fulfillment of being the righteous one suffering at the hands of the wicked for his righteousness, for his righteousness. And so they want us to see that in every detail, Jesus is fulfilling Scripture, both in the direct prophecies, both in those things that are prophesied by pictures or foreshadowing of events. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all, every detail, every detail of the Old Testament anticipation of the Messiah. One has said this, an old author, Author Pink, that's his name, Author Pink, says this, how marvelously complete was the prophetic foreview. No essential item was missing from it. Every important detail of the great tragedy had been written down beforehand, all plainly foretold centuries before they came to pass. What a convincing evidence of the divine inspiration of scriptures. And it is. It is. Every detail of God's prophetic word fulfilled in many other ways, but ultimately and most gloriously and most fully in the person of Christ. And so I would only add to Pink's words, what compelling evidence to the identity and to the person of Christ. Every angle that you look at his person, every angle that you consider his work, every detail that you look in anticipation of him, you are gloriously presented with a picture of Christ who came as an atonement for sin. It's glorious. And this is also a reminder to us that as every detail about the person of Christ, every prophetic detail was fulfilled in terms of his first coming, we are reminded so it will be in his second coming. As God's word proved authoritative and true in anticipating his incarnation, his death and resurrection, so it is authoritative and will be proven to be true in his return to judge the world in righteousness and to establish his kingdom. The word of God is unbreakable. It is unbreakable. And John here points that out. There's a second reason he says this. I thirst. John records that for us. It is to give full expression to his suffering. To give full expression to the reality that the eternal Son of God was united truly to humanity. So that he was truly God. He was truly man. And he truly suffered. We read last week in Colossians that in him the fullness of deity dwelled. In the man Christ Jesus. In the eternal word that became flesh and dwelled among us. He was fully man. 
he was fully man. It's a mystery. We can't fully understand that. But it is clearly what's presented to us in Scripture. So his acknowledgement reveals the incredible suffering of the cross. In fact, one has noted that sometimes the cause of death for the crucified victim was in fact dehydration. Incredible amounts of blood and bodily fluids are lost during the whole process. And that just really highlights another aspect here about Christ's perfection and his glory. Because in asking for something to drink, not only is he fulfilling scripture, not only is he demonstrating his true humanity, but he's also finding some relief that would give him a clarity of mind so that he could end his last moments in full possession of his mental faculties to speak a word of truth. That he would be clear-minded even to the end. One of the things that happens in dehydration is you get very cloudy-minded. You can't think and reason as well. Maybe that Jesus wanted to alleviate some of that physical condition as much as he could so that he could go to the end with absolute clarity. Absolute clarity. And there's a third here, and we'll talk about this later. He says, I thirst to mention and to show that his work of suffering was done. His work of suffering was finished. Oh, he still had to undergo death. He still had to be laid in the grave. He still had to rise. But the suffering, the suffering was coming to an end. And he's acknowledging that here. But then John tells us in verse 29 that after he said these marvelous words, I am thirsty, a jar full of sour wine was standing there. And so they put a sponge, they got a sponge, they put it in the wine, and they lifted it up to his mouth. So he could drink. And here Matthew then gives us the background, or John, excuse me, gives us the background for the statement of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. Where they lifted the wine now. One runs upon hearing these words of Jesus. And they run to give him some kind of relief. Nothing special about the wine here. It's a cheap wine. It was common among the average citizen, common among Roman citizens. One described it this way, a standard lexicon, the term here. It relieved thirst more effectively than water, and being cheaper than regular wine, it was a favorite beverage of the lower ranks of society and those in moderate circumstances. And as I mentioned, it was a, it was a common drink among the Roman soldiers. And so here Matthew picks up in Matthew 27, back on the action of what is surely probably one of the soldiers in response in a response of mercy to Jesus' cry. I just notice a side note here. You know, the Roman soldiers weren't exactly known for being these merciful people. Right? So why would, if this is the case, that it is an act of mercy, why, why would he have done that? Why would he, be, he have even cared? Why would that have mattered to fulfill the request of Jesus when he says that I am thirsty? Well, who can know? Who can know? But there does seem to be a real sense here that not the Jews, but the Romans, at least some of those at the foot of the cross, saw something more in Jesus that was merely than more than just a mere man suffering. The majesty and the glory and the strength and the clarity of mind and the purpose at which Jesus underwent all of his suffering surely made some dramatic impact on those who were observing, who were giving pain at least a bit of attention. 
You see this, we'll get to this later, but at the end of Matthew 27, near the end of this chapter, that there was a centurion who witnessed all of these things and witnessed his final cries and could not hold himself back from declaring, truly this was the Son of God. I mean, you can just imagine how amazing it was to witness Christ on the cross and how he endured all that he suffered. But in either case, even though this is an act of mercy, the point I want to bring out is this. There is no indication, at least in this case, with this person giving him the relief that it was an act of faith. There's no indication that it was an act of faith. An act of mercy, most likely, but not necessarily an act of faith. And I would just want to highlight this for us to consider on that. That feeling sympathy or compassion or even sorrow for Jesus in his suffering is not faith. It's not faith. It's not repentant faith. You say, why would I want to mention that? Why would I want to mention that? Because it's just so common. It's just so common that emotions are so often equated with the reality or a sincerity of faith. It could be compared in some ways to maybe masses of people who went to see the movie The Passion, right? Maybe some of you all saw that. This really descriptive picture of Christ's suffering on the cross, probably pretty accurate. We saw it once, I did. Probably pretty accurate to what happened and how it was. Not really a clear understanding of atonement and his substitutionary sacrifice, but certainly unveiling some of the physical aspects of his suffering. And so somebody could go see that. No doubt many did and felt some kind of mercy towards Christ, some kind of compassion toward him to see such suffering, but left unchanged, but left without sincere faith. May have felt many emotions, but do not demonstrate a repentant, believing, and obeying heart. It happens in whole wide swaths of Christianity and not just in our day but throughout the ages of those who have strong emotional reactions to a message or to the music of the gospel and yet leave unchanged, leave unchanged, may have some kind of human response to the suffering of Christ, even some kind of admiration for him, but not faith, not faith, not repentant faith. And that's what we see typified here in this this soldier, most likely, who felt mercy towards Jesus, felt felt some kind of compassion towards his suffering, felt some kind of maybe significance to the glory of his person, but not necessarily repentance, not necessarily faith. Now, there's no way to know the heart of this person, this soldier, but certainly there are many like him, many like him. So mercy and compassion towards Jesus, yet without saving faith, is one response. Let's look at another one quickly here in verse 49. And this is what we're more familiar with, particularly going through the gospel. The rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And this is a response of mockery. This is a response of mockery. Surely we've seen both throughout the ministry of Jesus. We saw many who were amazed at his miracles who had all kinds of responses, who even the gospel writers tell us gave glory to God because of the great works that he did. But more often what we see, particularly in these last moments, these last hours of his life, is we see the mockery. 
We see the mockery. And so that's what they're most familiar with. And so they said, wait, we'll see if Elijah comes to save him. Again, there's nothing here but disdain and contempt. Remember that back from uh, chapter 26, verse 67. Some who were the Jews, they spat in his face, beat him with their fists. Others slapped him. Prophesy to us, you Christ. He was the one who hit you. And again, we noted there that there's no reason for that. There's nothing accomplished by those statements other than to heap scorn, other than to make the pain as miserable as they possibly could. We saw how the soldiers treated him. They stripped him and put on a scarlet robe and chapter 27, put a crown of thorns on his head, kneeled down as fake worship and hit him on the head. We saw it when he was up on the cross just a few verses earlier in chapter 40. You are going to destroy the temple, rebuild it three days, save yourself if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Mockery, scorn, and this is just more of it, even to the very end. Now, Elisha was associated with the identity of Jesus at different times in his ministry. You remember when Jesus asked his disciple, Matthew 16, 14, for example, who do people say that I am? One of the suggestions was Elijah, because he had such power. And they, they had an anticipation in sort of the general Jewish mind, many of them, that Elijah was associated with the coming of the Messiah, the kingdom that would be established, even in Jesus' ministry we see a significance of Elijah. Remember, it was Elijah and Moses who appeared with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Scripture witnesses itself that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Malachi anticipated that one would come, that Elijah would come and restore the hearts of the children back to the fathers. So Elijah loomed large in the mind of the Jewish nation, and rightfully so in many respects. But here, the specific legend that is probably being alluded to is the one that said Elijah would come and rescue the suffering if they called on him. That was kind of common legend among some in the Jewish nation. And here they seem to be referring to that. Elijah is going to come and help the righteous. If you're the righteous one, let him come and help you. Let him come and save you from the suffering. Mark adds, let him come and take you down from the cross. Put an end to all of this. And so really, again, they're mocking him in a couple of ways. One is they're implying that Jesus is out of favor with the Father. He's out of favor with the Father. God's not going to help him. That's clear. He's on the cross. And so he must resort to calling on Elijah. It's kind of mockery. A second way they're mocking him is they're implying that Elijah hasn't come, which is evidence, in fact, that Jesus is not the righteous one. He's not beloved by God. He's been rejected not only by God, but he's been rejected by the prophet. It's a complete rejection. And so they may be mocking him in that way too. Surely both of them, both of them are intended. I want you to think of this though as well. Imagine if you were Jesus in a sense. In other words, imagine how you would have felt and what you would have done had you have been on the cross and had you have known that you had the power to destroy them that were mocking you. You had it fully within your resources to exact revenge on them. You had it fully in your resources to humiliate them, to shame them, and to expose their foolishness. Imagine if you were in that situation and you had the power to make them cower in fear. Most of us would have done it. Most of us would have done it. 
But what's highlighted here by Matthew recording this for us is that Jesus didn't do that. Why? Because the very opposite reason at which he came. He was enduring this mocking because he had come to endure that mocking. Because he took on humanity to endure that mocking. He knew there will be a day of vengeance, but now was the time of salvation. Now was the time of salvation. Just listen to Hebrews 9.28. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, which he's doing in Matthew's account, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. That time is coming, but now he came to bear the suffering to complete an atonement for sin. So in perfect, loving obedience to the Father, perfect submission to the Father's will, just as the prophet Isaiah anticipated, he bore their mockery in silence as a sheep who is silent before its shears. And so we see the glory of the obedience of Christ in this. We see the glory of His humility. We see the perfection of His atonement and His purpose to fulfill completely the will of the Father. And so Jesus is here dying not only as our atonement, that is at the heart of it, but also as our example. Also as our example. We have the same life of Jesus within us. And Peter himself uses this very endurance of Christ on the cross and not responding to those who mocked him as an example for us in our life of entrusting our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Are you tempted to respond with anger? Are you tempted to lash out towards those who might mock you because of the name of Christ? That's not what we're to do. That's not what Christ did. He endured it. He knew that the day of vengeance would come, but there's something even more. He knew that while bearing the hatred of the world, he's providing atonement for sin, and his desire was rather for salvation. His desire was for salvation. And that should be ours when we bear the scorn of the world. Oh, it's so hard. And and really the only way that we can do that is through much prayer and our hearts being much in line with the will of God and much meditation on what Christ endured for us. We need to hear when we might receive the mocking from the world. We need to hear the cries that were risen up against the Lord Jesus Christ. On our behalf, and we need to endure them for His sake and by His strength and His Spirit within us to endure them as He endured them. I don't know what you're encountering for the testimony of faith. Maybe nothing now, maybe it will be in the future, maybe you have in the past. I don't know what God will require of me either. But this is to be our meditation. He endured it, He endured it on purpose. To fulfill the will of the Father. And here's the striking feature. That Jesus bore this mocking as the Lord of glory. And at every point remains in sovereign control. That's really the amazing thing here. Again, let me remind you of a verse we've mentioned many times. John chapter 10. For this reason, Jesus said, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, least of all these mockers. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. 
In other words, this is according to the will of God. So let's notice the last point, the might of Jesus. Verse 50, the might of Jesus. Because this cannot be said enough, and it's a reality that Scripture keeps pointing us to again and again, and it's this. God was in absolute sovereign control of the suffering of Jesus and our own suffering. That's the point of Peter. And so here Matthew specifically highlights the control of the Son. Remember, remember that this is the mystery of the incarnation that we're observing. This is the mystery of the incarnation. What do I mean? It's a mystery of who is upon the cross. This is the one who spoke all things into existence. This is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. This is the one for whom all of creation was created to be subsumed under his lordship and his rule. Ephesians tells us that. And yet here he is by that creation enduring, mocking, though he remains in absolute control of everything. He's not a hapless victim. He's the king and the ruler of men and the judge of men. Who's enduring it. And so Matthew highlights that in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And he yielded up his spirit. And here spirit is simply a reference to his life really. His human spirit. The work of Christ. The propitiation for sin. The averting of God's wrath. Through his sacrifice. Has been made. And so he comes to the end. And he yielded up his spirit. Now again, the exact physical cause of Christ's death is debated and and frankly, it's not really that important. The fact is, what's important is that he died. Is that he died. There's many ways that someone could die through crucifixion physically. Or there's at least several ways that somebody could die through crucifixion. But the important point here is this. That Christ is the one who's determining when his life comes to an end. One actually said, old writer said that, that he died of a broken heart because of the sorrow of bearing the sin. That's, that's saying a little too much. Augustine had it a little closer when he said this. He gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. In other words, he was in absolute control. And so Matthew is emphasizing the sovereign control over the situation. But I want to just take a moment to look again at John. John gives us the theological reason. The theological significance of Christ staying on the cross and giving up his own life. We go one verse more of what we read earlier in John 19. We stopped at verse 29. Verse 30 says this. After they brought the hyssop with the wine in it up to his mouth. John says this in verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He said, It is finished. Those are some of the most glorious and profound words in all of Scripture. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. We can never tire of singing that. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. 
what a savior. It is finished. It's finished. The full price for redemption was paid. The full atonement for our sin had been made. There was nothing that could be added to the work of Christ for our atonement. Nothing could be added. Everything was placed on Christ. The entire weight and the fullness of the sin of his people whom he came to redeem had been met, endured. It had been met. Nothing could be added to a sacrifice. Nothing could make us more or less justified. Nothing could make us more righteous. Nothing could be done to appease God's wrath. God's justice was satisfied completely, fully. Those who come from a Catholic background hear something along these lines that, yes, the justice of God was satisfied to ultimately bring us to heaven, but there's all kinds of justice of God that must be satisfied for our sins on earth. That's why we need to do sacraments and so forth, and that's why there's purgatory until you can go to heaven and receive the full benefits. That's a lie. That's a lie. It is finished. Everything necessary to satisfy the justice of God for our sin, who have trusted in Him, had been met, has been met in Christ. It's done. This is the continual testimony of Scripture. Listen, Christ was the high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. Because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It's done. He entered into the holy tabernacle of heaven, not through the blood of goats and calves, But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. By this will, the will of God that involved Christ coming and taking on flesh and dying and rising. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. There's absolutely nothing that can be added to the work of Christ. It is finished. It is done. The atonement is completed. Everything has been paid. There's, no, there's an end of the sin or the guilt and the curse of the law against the sin of his people for whom he came to redeem. Satan has been defeated and the power of Satan has been removed in Hebrews 2. The law has been completely fulfilled. There's nothing else to add to it. And this is true for all who have trusted in him by faith. That's the fullness of grace. If you have trusted in him, that's everything. He has done everything for us. Everything. There's nothing left for us to do but to believe and trust in his work. And trust in his work. So the son's work on earth and in redemption is completed. And now he's going to return back to father, to the father. He's going to return back to paradise where the thief would soon follow. Until the time of his resurrection. And then his ascension back to the father. His sending of the spirit. And Jesus died in complete, complete Obedience to the Father and with a clear conscience. Actually, just before he said, 
it is finished, Luke records for us these words that he said clearly, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I think he said that before he said it was finished. In either case, Luke brings out for us another glorious aspect of the perfect life of Christ. They're repeating Psalm 31, 5. He ended his life again as the perfect spotless lamb who obeyed the Father even to the very end. And notice here that both of those statements of Christ follow after the cry of despair. And so the cry of despair, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, has now given way to I thirst. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit, O Father. And what is significant about that, particularly in Luke's words, is this. And this particularly even in contrast to the earlier words of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's this. Jesus died in perfect communion with the Father. He died in communion with the Father. He was at the very end desiring the presence of His Father. The one whom He had obeyed throughout His whole life. The one whom he had glorified in his death. He now returned, longed to return and to be with him. Let me give you another aspect of that that's pretty amazing. It's this. As Jesus was returning back to the Father who he eternally loved, the Father who eternally loved the Son and was pleased and delighted in him, Because of Christ and because of His work, we who have trusted in Him, and you if you have not but trusted in Him today, enter into the same communion with the Father. Because the Father of Christ is our Father. The one who loves Christ eternally loves us in the Son. We mentioned that last week, but listen to Jesus' own words. He said this after His resurrection to Mary. Magdalene, he says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. In Jesus, we experience death with that same comfort. Listen to what Calvin said. He said, Let us now remember that it was not in reference to himself alone that Christ committed his soul to the Father, but that he included, as it were, in one bundle, all the souls of those who believe in him, that they may be preserved along with his own. Therefore, Stephen also, when dying, resigns his soul into his hands, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Everyone who, when he comes to die, following this example, shall believe in Christ, will not breathe his soul at random into the air, but will resort to a faithful guardian who keeps in safety whatever has been delivered to him by the Father. In other words, Christ faced death. He faced those final moments and absolute confidence in the Father, a desire to be with him, to restore his communion at a greater level that he had with him from all eternity past. And because of Christ, and because of the atonement, and because of being in Him, and because of the Spirit being sent, and because of union with Christ, if you know Christ, we can face death 
Indeed, we should face death with that same kind of confidence. And let me tell you, beloved, just as a note with that, that when we have that confidence, it also determines how we live. It determines how we live. Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. He obeyed the Father perfectly because he loved him and he knew the end. And so it is for us. And so it is for us. When death comes to those who are in Christ, these words are of immense comfort. When we lose someone close to us who is in Christ, these words are of immense comfort. We don't face death in fear, but in anticipation of being with the Father because of Him who's gone before us. And so Luke says, Into your hands, from the lips of Jesus, I commit my spirit. I commit my spirit. John records to us, It is finished. The work is completed. The atonement has been made. The way for sinners into the presence of God has been paved. Jesus had finished the work that he had been given to do. And it's like what Paul said to Timothy at the end of his life. He said, I finished the course. I've kept the faith. I know there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord has promised, and not only for me, but for all who have loved his appearing. That's the testimony that we want at the end of our life to be able to offer up to God and anticipate his presence without shame. Without shame. Paul said earlier that's why he always maintains a clear conscience because he knew he was going to stand before his Christ who had gone before him, his God and his Savior. And so here Jesus stands at the end of Matthew. Crucified, yes. Soon to experience death. In fact, in verse 50, experiencing death. Because the first part of his mission was completed. It was done. And as I mentioned, as the first part was completed, we have now only to await the next part of his mission, which is to return and establish his kingdom on this earth. For his return in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And we wait for this return. That's what we wait for. That's what we hope for. That's what we need to grow in the depth of our hope for and our longing for is for Christ to return. He's given us his body on the earth, a symbol to remind us of that return. And that's the Lord's table that we now turn to. It's the Lord's Supper. So when we eat this supper, as it's called, we eat it in faith. When we drink the cup, We drink in faith. We are reminded then that it should be an expression of our lives that are lived in faith, in obedience to Him, in genuine trust in Him, in true display of a transformed heart and love for Christ. And so as we come into the table and before the men pass out the elements, you ask yourself, Have I trusted in Christ? What do I hear in his cry? What do I hear? What impact does that have on my soul? The fact that Christ died and he rose again. Have I trusted in him? Is my life demonstrating, though full of imperfection, though full of remaining sin that we battle day in and day out and we confess, though full of frustrations at our own failure to worship him as we want to and as he deserves, but do we see that desire 
Do we see that desire to battle the sin in our life? Do we see that we hope in him and nothing else? Do we see our love for him and the glory and the glitter of heaven and his righteousness is greater to us than the glory and the glitter of the passing pleasures of this world? If we do, then we can have confidence that, in fact, we have experienced his salvation. His spirit does live within us. If not, then this table isn't for you. That's how we guard the table. Some people say you can't take of the table unless you're a member of the church And those are the ones, recognized members. We open the table to all who sincerely believe in Christ, but we do so always with this warning, that it is a table for believers. It is a table for the regenerate, those who have the life of Christ in them. And so if that is not the reality in your heart, then this is not a table of worship and rejoicing. It's certainly not a way that you maintain or gain salvation it actually will become a table of judgment and discipline. And so we want to give that warning as well and say for, our, for us, hopefully most of us in this room, it is a time of worship. But for the others, it's a time for you to consider your own soul, who Christ is, what he has done, and we hope that you would believe in him, trust in him, and give your life to him who can save you and who alone can save you. Let me pray and the men will come forward with the elements. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the gift of your son. Our Lord Jesus, thank you for your perfect obedience to the Father, your perfect love to the Father, your perfect fulfillment of righteousness. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you sustained Christ in his work and applied it to the hearts of all of those whom he came to redeem. And you're still applying it today, and you will all the way to the end of this age. We want to anticipate that day in hope. And so fill us with that sense, even as we look at the bread and the wine and remember the body and the blood of Christ. We remember not only the past of what you did, our Lord, not only the present of what you're doing in our life and building your kingdom in growing us in holiness and righteousness, but what you will do in the future when you establish your kingdom here on earth. Help us to live in the light of those realities always. And again, we pray for those who don't know you, that today might be the day that you show your glory in the face of Christ. And it's our, in your name, our Lord, we pray. Amen.
satisfied all that God requires from us for our sins. 